I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to another episode of Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo, and wherever you are in the world, it's great to have you with us, and I hope you're keeping safe and well. On today's episode, I'm joined by two fabulous authors who'll be going head-to-head in a war of the words a little later on in our Book Off. We're connecting the west coast of America with London today so let's hope the string and tin cans hold out for the next 40 minutes or so. My first guest is the author of several novels including Kung Fu and All Involved which won the American Literary Association's Alex Award. He's a member of a street art crew and a prison writing mentor for Penn America here to tell us about his latest novel The System. It's Ryan Gattis. Hello welcome to Book Off. Hi Joe how are you? I'm really well, and I'm even better for speaking to you, Ryan. So thank you for joining us. And my second guest is a debut novelist who grew up in London and was drawn to a life of crime from quite an early age. He's now left that world behind and is recapturing his life through his writing. Here to tell us about his brilliant first novel, which was long-listed for the Booker Prize and just recently shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize. Tick him off. Uh, the, the novel yeah. is Who They Was, and he is Gabriel Krause, and welcome to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. And uh, you guys know each other, I think, or certainly have done some events together before, right? So this is not your first meeting. No, we haven't. No, Actually, is it is the meeting. first meeting ever. <laughs> oh, I thought, I, for some reason, I thought that, you know, you guys had done stuff. Okay, so this I brought you together. You did. Yes, you have. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're responsible for what follows. Well played, Joe. Well played. <laughs> yeah, nice one, nice one. Well, let's say well played at the end of the episode and see how we go on. Um, I'm confident. Ryan, how do we... Yeah, me too. How do we find you uh, and how do we find Los Angeles and how do we find America? I, on a map, maybe. Uh, or do you mean... <laughs> how, how am I doing right now? Um, yeah, how are you doing? <laughs> I honestly, I, I'm doing all right. Um, Los Angeles, unfortunately, has been hit terrifyingly hard uh, by the pandemic. Um, the, as we know, I think the biggest indicator for 
uh, just fatalities and difficulty is population density. And LA is one of the most densely populous cities in, in, in all of the United States, even the world. Uh, so things really haven't been going great. I live in South LA. I primarily write about South Central LA. And, and honestly, things have been really rough right now. And I think it's fair to say, possibly not to that degree, Ryan, necessarily, but here in London, when you're talking about population and density, you know, I'm in I'm in Hackney. Gabriel, you, you, you're in London as well. I, I definitely feel it's harder to go out at yeah. the moment because there are so many people. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. And I think also it's that sense of when you do go out, there's a kind of sense of the city, which which one's used to being so crowded and having such an energy being quite barren, um, which is a bit kind of dispiriting in a way. I mean, you can go for long walks and everything, but this the sense of loneliness kind of doesn't leave you just because you leave your house, basically the sense of isolation in a way very much so and i've been hoping for this for this series and indeed last year when we we did two series of the podcast through the other lockdowns you know it's it's so nice to to just for me personally to be chatting to get to chat to to people like you and all my other guests and i hope that for the people listening it's a little bit of company as well uh, depending on whatever situation anyone is in if they're isolated or you know if they're just a bit sick of seeing only their partner um perhaps this is a way of uh, you know just just breaking away from that and um it's quite nice Ryan to to be able to talk about Los Angeles you know even though it's not in a great state at the moment but uh, it's nice for us in in the UK to to think <laughs> to think about the sunnier palm trees yeah. of LA. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure, I get it. I get it. And just to speak very briefly to what you said, I I totally agree. I mean, I've been looking forward to this for a while. You know, just to sit down with you guys and have a chat. Oh, I really appreciate it. Well, it's you know, hey, we're 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 all as uh, pleased as each other then, and that's nice. <laughs> so what we're uh, we're gonna do for the next sort of. 30 minutes or so is is i want to talk about these brilliant books which i mentioned your latest novels i want to talk about your writing find out what you've been reading and of course we have the book off at the end of the podcast which i'm very excited about um ryan the system is the is the new novel i got a proof copy of this really early on last year i think because originally it was meant to be published uh, yeah. last year wasn't it um it, it was indeed it got put off twice actually so twice. i'm glad you got one so quickly yeah i got this beautiful white uh, proof and i was very excited and i remember emailing your publicist the lovely kate about it because i absolutely loved all involved and that was about LA riot, the LA riots in, in, in 92, this book takes place post the riots. So just set the scene for us. Um, who, who do we meet in this book and, and where exactly or sort of what point are we at in Los Angeles history here? Sure. Well, we're, we come in at the very end of 1993, you know, on not even, you know, not far off. The, the greatest conflagration in, in U.S. history. Uh, you know, the, the fires in 92 were, were absolutely incredible and, and totally changed the face of the city. So we come in in 93, and, and one of the other things that has changed in the city, of course, is, you know, some of the criminal justice procedures, you know, as a result of everything that, that, that happened in 92. So we, we come in, we meet uh, Dreamer, who's uh, a young gang member in, in Linwood, and he 
has to deal with uh, essentially being uh, being chucked in on a crime that that he had nothing to do with. We know he's innocent because we get his alibi right off the bat. I'm not ruining anything. There are no spoilers <laughs> here. Uh, but I just I really. I wanted to show the community, I wanted to show the culture, but of course there are so many overlapping communities and culture, you know, cultures in this book, uh, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's the lawyers, whether it's the folks in Linwood, whether it's, you know, the victim or even, you know, their families, you know, because uh, one of the things I've learned over, you know, my decade of research in South Central and really spending time with people is that crime never touches uh, the participants alone. You know, it touches everybody who's connected to them, who loves them. And so as a result, I think I, I really uh, I set the bar a little high, you know, having uh, 12 recurring narrators. And, uh, you know, it took me six years to write for a reason. Um, but I, that's that's roughly where we start. And, and we basically follow uh, one crime uh, from commission to investigation to arrest uh, and then into uh, custody and then trial. It's so, it's so good, <laughs> but I just loved reading it, and I also found it so genuine. And of course, it's hard for me as a white man in London to say that I found it genuine. But I, what I mean is, I I feel like you put the work in and the research in to get the voice, the authentic voice that you did get, and I imagine that was really important for you. Thank you. Yeah, always, always. It's the most important thing. I, I would say this, you know, Joe, you might not be the best uh, arbiter of authenticity, but any reader is is an excellent arbiter of genuineness. You know, it's going to ring for you or it's not. It's going to feel real for you or it's not. Um, and in, in my case, you know, it, I'm so connected to Linwood now. We've done multiple um, murals there. We've been working with the schools um, been doing some initiatives with the mayor. Like it's, we, we've been doing this for a long time. So I spent a tremendous amount of, of time and energy with, you know, with the folks that I, I, you know, who live in the community I write about. And I think there, there's responsibility to that, that I, I really hold as, as sacred. And it's incredibly important to me to represent it as well as I possibly can. And, you know, and that sometimes that means really difficult conversations uh, with, with, you know, a wide swath of people, you know, I definitely had some difficult conversations with some of my law enforcement friends, uh, as I was writing this book, cause they weren't super excited about me writing it. Um, but it's, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, forgive me for kind of sputtering out here, but it's, it's, uh, it comes from the heart, you know, and I'd like to think any reader can feel that. I definitely did. And I want to come back and talk about you know, the work that you, you do in that community um, in just a moment. Gabriel, uh, congratulations, uh, first of all, for, for the Dylan Thomas yes, Prize shortlisting. Yeah. <laughs> congratulations on everything. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, it's oh and, and, and the Booker Prize. Yeah, sure. Yeah, just that little, that. <laughs> that little matter, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's mad. It's mad. It's completely unexpected. I'm not going to lie. Right. Well, maybe maybe it's unexpected, but in my opinion, very much deserved because I loved your book too. And it must be so nice and so sort of surreal, I suppose, to to see how even, you know, years after you initially thought about it and wrote it and it's been published for a while now and it's still getting this recognition, it sort of just lives on and on. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, 
I think the the recognition in in terms of like how it impacts me personally is that it's just a vindication that what I'm doing in terms of deciding to be a writer is is kind of the right thing for me to do and I mean I definitely write because I have a need to write if somebody were to ask me how to make money the first thing I'd say is don't be a writer um <laughs> but man, I think I think most writers would say that as well to be quite honest but um it's it's definitely a need that I have and a need to in this case it was a need to tell my story and to also open a window onto a world that one only really sees like in newspaper headlines and in, in newspaper columns and then it's always this very brief focus on on a criminal event or the the committal of a certain crime or a gang feud in London or whatever and you never get the layers of the different stories behind that and the the kind of complexity of the different lives that that kind of converge into this sudden tragic or sudden violent or or destructive moment um and I just wanted to open a window into that world and it's very interesting actually what um what Ryan was saying about the kind of genuineness that people you know people might not be able to be good arbiters of authenticity but they can definitely feel the genuineness and I definitely 100% agree with that but I also think there is a, a problem to some extent at least I think over here I mean my book hasn't been published in the states yet so it's coming out in June so we'll see what the reaction is like over there but I think there's some issue with how people can feel morally challenged when they realize how authentic something is and how how real something is and I think people have certainly found certain readers have have certainly had a big issue with my book when they've realized how real it is and and the perspective that it comes from that this is somebody who was actually involved in this world and is writing from experience and for some people I think for some readers and and just for people in general who who kind of have a strong moral sense or or maybe who live their lives according to a strong moral sense they need the barrier of the writer being just a creator and not having actually penetrated the reality of that world um i mean i, I mean personally to personally i don't really care in terms of you know those people's feelings and their sensitivity because i'm here to tell the truth and to bring the reality to life and not not to be too kind of highbrow about it or anything but the german philosopher heidegger said this amazing thing where he said that the nature of art is the truth of being setting itself to work and i think that's like for a writer it's like the highest goal and for any artist to to kind of set to work the truth of being and the, the truth of that reality so yeah. I think that's what I was trying to achieve with this book, basically. Well, and the other thing that that I just sort of thought about then, Gabriel, hearing you talk, is that this could have so easily been, or a, a book could that you write could so easily have been a non-fiction piece of work. And actually, you know, you've chosen fiction. Um, and I, I wonder if that makes it harder for some readers to stomach in some ways, whereas had it been a sort of non-fiction tale of of your own life specifically um i don't know maybe it would have been perceived differently well i think first of all if i'd have written it as a as a work of non-fiction a lot of the things that i was involved in and that happened around me in my life i wouldn't have for legal reasons been allowed to write about and by fictionalizing them and fictionalizing certain incidents it allowed me to to tell the truth 
to some extent and to portray the truth of that reality and how messy and ugly and also how genuinely existential it is that that gang culture and the criminal lifestyle is, is incredibly existential and amoral and nihilistic um but i think the other kind of difficult thing about it in in terms of also that sorry also i wanted to add actually the the context of literature like i think literature because literature is uh, one of the kind of true art forms among others um you know it transports the reader emotionally into the heart of a character's experience and then in that way it basically reveals the truth of a reality which would otherwise be inaccessible to a reader so if a reader works reads a work of non-fiction they're reading a total truth but there's no emotional bridge has been built between the life of a character because it's more like a reportage it's more like a piece of journalism and i think it's when you follow the story of a character or you follow the inner life or the the inner dialogue of a character you start to empathize with that person or you start to see the humanity within them even if they're a character that you can't identify with that to to some extent you even might not might not like but you can see the humanity within that person but then i think also you know one of the difficulties I think for readers with reading my book is I think people want kind of these kind of Damascene resolutions these you know this this resolving moment at the end where you know the the central figure finds Jesus and everything ends happily ever after and it's like that's not the reality so I'm not going to give people that and <laughs> I think it's like there's there's a section maybe of of the reading public that wants those kind of narratives and I mean that's that's all good and everything but you know that that wasn't the reality of the world that I existed in. Yeah. And Ryan, did you did you find you know in doing your research and all these conversations and in some cases difficult conversations that you had with people that you had to try and you know n not put their stories in but rather be influenced and then rewrite that part of history. Well, I'm I'm glad you asked. I mean, because I, I mean, Gabriel just said so many things there that I was feeling and I wanted to jump in on. But <laughs> but to be honest with you, it's so fascinating and it resonated so much for me because I've been asked so many times because of the depth of of my research and and with the system, for example, I was you know visiting jails and prisons and and you know formerly incarcerated folks all over California. But you know, one of the things I often get asked is, why don't you write nonfiction? Why don't, why don't you bother mm. Why don't you do that? You know, and my response is always, well, for one, you know, fiction gives me the keys, you know, it gives me, yeah. it, it puts me in charge of the story because so much of what I do in my research is sitting with people and listening. Uh, but at the end of the day, I need to go away from that and I need to find ways to connect it to, to bigger things. You know, whether it's another, you know, another narrative, historical elements, uh, you know, or just basic bedrock elements of humanity. Uh, so I told people and, and but this is this is also perhaps tied to um, the area where I was primarily doing my research, you know, with with uh, Latino gangs, specifically Chicano gangs here in Los Angeles. Um, I would never have been allowed in any of these places if I told people I was writing nonfiction. Like it's as Gabriel mentioned earlier, you know, there, there's a there's a legal element in, in some of these cases, you know, and I have definitely sat down with people for whom there is no such thing as a statute of limitations on some of the things they've done. So, you know, as far as that's concerned, it's incredibly important, but also respectful, you know, to let people know from the jump, hey, I don't write nonfiction. I'm not interested in writing your story. 
you know, I'm doing research, I'm doing background, I, you know, I already have my story in mind, but I need to make sure it's respectful, uh, it's human, and it, it says something larger. And, 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 you know, I think one of the most important things Gabriel said was that it's, you know, and, and forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth, uh, but you basically said it's, it's not just okay to confront the reader, it's important to confront the reader, especially if it's coming from this place of truthfulness. 100%, yeah, yeah. Did you find as well when you were interviewing people or sitting down rather to listen to them that once they realized you weren't writing nonfiction that they kind of realized your approach had no kind of exploitative motivation behind it and that you actually kind of cared about all the kind of details of their lives which in a sense I guess reporters or journalists who write about crime kind of have no interest they just want kind of the gory you know or, or mm. lurid kind of dramatic material um no oh, i I, th I think so but i would say this it depends on the person right i mean mm -hmm. each each person has kind of a different a different take i've certainly had people walk away from me never talk to me again uh and and that's fine you know that's people are are more than uh welcome to to make whatever judgments uh they decide in that moment but i you know i tell you it's I, there was a relaxation, but I think it also came from the fact that I just kept showing up, you know, I kept coming through and then one year became two, became three, five, ten. It's been 10 years now. And I, I mean, I, I say this with with gratitude and respect, but now I feel like I'm, you know, I'm part of the community now as well. Hmm. Well, can we talk a little about Linwood and, and, you know, I mentioned in the intro, Ryan, you, you do um, street art and you work in, in prisons. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that? Because you're obviously incredibly passionate about it. And obviously it, it's very important to you as well in terms of those relationships that you have in that community. Oh, absolutely. Well, one of the things I can say pretty quickly here is that it doesn't matter wh where I've gone, where I've been. I, everywhere I go, I, I, I meet folks with talent. I meet folks with, with sharpness, with wit, uh, and yet opportunities don't always exist. So one of the reasons that, uh, you know, I work the way I work with Uglar Works here, here in LA, we have done a series of mural projects. We just started out uh, working with the Linwood Union, which is one of the, uh, the arts groups in, in Linwood. And our entire idea was to only have, you know, uh, former students who had graduated, but had had interest in painting, but had never painted. And we were basically going to help them create portfolio material. So as long as we didn't touch the wall, uh, and, and they, they planned it, and we taught them how to put it up, when they were done putting it up, they could basically say, hey, you know, this is on my resume. You know, I, I've done this. I know how to do this. I learned along the, on the way. And we had an incredible uh, art mentor from, from Linwood High School as well who helped us pick the students. And by the end of it, we had uh, one of our buddies come down and he checked it out and he runs a painting company and he hired two of those, two of those oh, youngsters wow. to go paint, um, gosh, Star Wars land at, at Disneyland. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so yeah and in, and in at least one of those cases i can say for sure like the the young lady had had no plans for for you know what was going on uh after you know after high school so it, that was a really incredible 
you know, opportunity for her. And as, as far as some of the other things, you know, uh, I do prison mentoring for, um, for PEN America for, for the very same reason. There's talent everywhere, but there, you know, but opportunity is scarce. Uh, so, you know, I, I just do what I can to, to provide, uh, feedback from my professional framework to help as many people as possible, hopefully take another step or, or even at the very least think, you know, are there other options in my life? Are there other things I can do? Like, are there other th- things that I can do to take care of my family? I think, you know, that's, that's what drives me. I, I want to just tease the stories of both these books because I realized that I've been talking about, about them, but we haven't actually sort of said much about the actual <laughs> stories and we're not going to give anything away here but for for people listening who perhaps haven't had a chance to pick up these books yet let's let's just get a sense of of what's going on so Ryan we we mentioned it's it's 93 I, I talked about the end of the rights just tell us the the story here though of of the characters give us the setup and and tell us about Wizard and Dreamer oh dear okay <laughs> on the spot um, yeah, you know, it's, it's basically, it's about a crime and one gang member is guilty and one gang member is innocent, but given the community of this particular gang, you know, the innocent member doesn't have the ability to opt out. He has to, he has to ride with it. He has to take the charge. Um, and that creates tension that creates difficulty. And we, we essentially move with him, you know, at every, we have 12 narrators in the book. We're with every single person in you know, we're, we're in their head, their, their hearts, their thoughts. So we're really trying to get a sense of how the system works from every angle, because we have law enforcement, we have lawyers, we have, um, a parole agent as well. But I think the the main story may very well be, you know, dreamer and wizard, uh, really suffering through the system, including the delays, uh, and the difficulties, particularly inherent in a custody situation and in, in a very fraught, uh, gang environment in the mid '90s, there early '90s, uh, and they have to find a way to get through it and hope uh, that 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 the trial goes well. And Gabriel, who they was, as we've discussed, draws on a lot of your own life experience. So, yeah. could you just tell us about this story that you tell, and you know what what made you want to put it on the page? Well, it's basically, you know, it's basically the narrative of a young man who's basically a representation of myself and how I got involved in uh, gang culture. And it's it's basically a window onto the reality of what it's really like to be a gang member in London. And in that sense, what I mean is the kind of repetitiveness of criminal culture where you're involved in crime on a daily basis you know the the single and singular dramatic moments that one reads about in the newspaper are just part of a kind of endless cycle of repetitive violence revenge um robberies as well um because that's kind of a central theme of of um the book because of course a lot of people especially in london the the main focus when newspapers write about gang culture is post cold wars and gang rivalries in terms of areas and neighborhoods and everything Whereas there are also robbery gangs operating out of different estates, um, and and there's basically like these all these different kind of contexts and criminal codes that young people live according to and live by, and it's a completely different reality. Often the parents aren't even aware really of the intricacies of that reality and the different codes by which 
a lot of these young men and teenagers as well live by and the pressures as well that they are subject to and for me one of the the things that I experienced that I felt was particularly that I felt was a particularly important thing to to write about this was first of all my own um, conflict my, my kind of personal conflict which was me being born to Polish immigrants who came to this country for a better life they came to escape the the communist regime in Poland with you know full of the idealism that a lot of immigrant families have when they arrive to a new and better and wealthier country with more opportunities but I got sucked into I was born here so I didn't have that perspective of you know this being a better place to anywhere else and I got sucked into a criminal culture that surrounded me because it wasn't that you know I didn't step out of my house one day and think to myself how do I get into a gang because you could never get involved in a gang or you could never get involved in a criminal fraternity or a criminal culture like that because you voyeuristically would like to to go and do that it's the influences and the pressures have to be around you as you step out of your house and everything and in in London and I think one of the particularly kind of idiosyncratic things about the city which was on one hand is good but on the other it can cause a lot of issues as well is you'll have a really poor area or like a really kind of relatively dangerous environment right next to a very wealthy area and what happens is it can create a, a type of resentment where you know you're in your block like there's drug dealers on on the balcony there are crackheads in the stairwells and everything and that's like your daily reality you come out of your house that is what you see on a daily basis at night you might hear gunshots you'll hear police cars pulling into the estate police helicopters like with lights at night you know coming through your window and that and then you walk down the road or you take a bus somewhere and literally within five ten minutes you're in an, in an incredibly wealthy area like the people have a completely different quality to life there are no flats like everyone's living in big houses with back gardens and a lot of there's there's a lot of people there's not to say that this is like a natural thing that everybody gets sucked into that because likewise there are loads of people who live in the setting that I you know a lot of the action in the book takes place around South Kilburn estate which especially in the noughties which is when the book is set was a notorious a notorious place with a very high rate of gun crime and, and gang culture and everything. It doesn't mean that everybody who lived there is involved in crime. It's a small percentage of people, largely young men, who get drawn into this lifestyle of making money illegally and they get territorial. And part of that territorial aspect, I think, arises out of not having anything to represent and be proud of. So you decide to stake your claim on your area and you go to war with other groups of young men because it, it gives you a sense of importance, gives you a sense that your life has some really you know, serious meaning to it and a serious context to it, you know, because a lot of the time, if you take away those layers, you're left with a sense of hopelessness, you're left with a sense of a lack of purpose for, for, for multiple reasons. It's not to say that I'm just, you know, blaming society and the world at large, because of course there's an instinct. Certain young men in those same environments, they go to school, they study, they go to college, they get a great education, they have great careers, bang in it, like they're sorted in it. Like just like I had a twin brother who from a very young age was focused on his career, whereas I wasn't, because I had a different instinct to him and you know, there is there is a certain beast of prey instinct within certain young men that in the wrong environment or with the wrong pressures and wrong influences turns into something incredibly negative. So I'd say my book is basically about that journey of how somebody gets sucked into that environment and the pressures of that environment and then how quickly that 
that can unravel and how quickly very interestingly actually which links to what Ryan was saying in the very beginning of the podcast how it doesn't just you know these these lifestyles and and the impact of this lifestyle it isn't a singular impact that you know only damages or affects the one person who goes to prison or the one person who gets who's a victim of violent crime no it has this huge domino effect of everyone around you it damages the family structure it damages friendships and and it also damages another aspect of your life which is your prospects which is something that when you're a young man you don't really think about you don't consider you feel like the world is yours time is kind of endless you're almost immortal you know it's a very strange kind of reality so I wanted to show that and I also wanted to show the the humanity beneath that as well because you know we like you know gang members or whatever you know we sell drugs bang guns whatever and all that stuff but we also fall in love like we also yearn for different things that we want we we have dreams as well like you know it's you know they're not one-dimensional people basically no and do you know what it's so interesting here you talk about you walk 10 minutes down the road in london and suddenly there's houses with gardens and you know i've i've lived in london for uh, a lot a lot 14 years or something and you know very lucky to to live in quite nice areas generally but as a person who lives here as you do walk around the city when one is allowed to and mingling you do notice it and you notice that suddenly you turn a corner and oh it feels a bit different or it looks a bit different here similarly ryan I, I go to LA a lot um, for work and pleasure. I lived there very briefly several years ago and I often have this same feeling there. It usually happens halfway through my trip and my stay because when I get there, I'm all excited and I jump in the open top car and I might drive <laughs> around Beverly Hills and I might go for a glass of Chardonnay at the Beverly Hills Hilton just because I think I'm like a complete rock star. Um, but then, <laughs> But then, you know... I take a trip out out of Beverly Hills or I'm driving somewhere else, which means I have to drive through a different neighbourhood or I want to go to a particular restaurant which doesn't happen to be in the, uh, you know, the lavish sort of area that we know as Hollywood. And you think, actually, geez, like, L.A. is a tough city to live in if you don't have money. Oh, absolutely. I mean... And- it's amazing to hear Gabriel talk and Joe. I'm grateful you've you've put us together because man, I mean, yeah, you guys can't tell, but I just sit here nodding when Gabriel's talking. <laughs> like, yup, yup, it's like yup, that's how that works. Yup, exactly. Especially especially Los Angeles and London, you know. And I've actually been lucky enough to live in both cities as well, Joe. I lived in Hackney uh, in the early two thousands. That's where I am now uh, for about yeah yeah for about five years uh, actually, and it was a really interesting time. You know, things were we're really shifting, you know, in and around the neighborhood in, in a pretty crazy way. Uh, but as far as Los, Los Angeles is concerned, you know, I just tell people, look, it's a world, it's an entire globe uh, in, in a city. Uh, you know, we have almost every language spoken on earth in Los Angeles. We have, you know, pockets within pockets. You know, LA County alone is over 5,000 square miles. I'm sure London is actually a bit bigger um, but the containment of the hills of the ocean, I think, makes makes for a little bit of a claustrophobic feeling in and around L.A. And, and the segmentation of the of the freeways actually, you know, really serve to cut 
some of these communities in, in half. And that's certainly the case with Linwood because the 105 freeway, which was built to basically get people to the airport faster, was literally built above Linwood and above Compton. And they, they just cut a hole straight through it and then they lifted it up you know, uh, 15, 20 feet high so that you don't even see what's going on in these communities. You are literally above them as you drive by. And so you don't get to think or even need to think about the lives of, of folks down there, the opportunities, the costs, the difficulties, but also, and I think this is super important, what Gabriel was pointing out earlier, the hopes, the dreams, the loves, like the positive human elements as well. Uh, because it's so easy, whether it's newspaper headlines or Oh, God, it's certainly television and film, you know, coming from this city. Um, you know, I think it's it, people really get certain ideas in their head about what a place is like. And then there are no go zones all over Los Angeles. I certainly found this to be the case. But, you know, when I when I first moved to L.A., it was, gosh, early 2009, I believe. And man, I I didn't own a car and mainly because and I had no money. Like, I couldn't afford a car. Uh, so I took the bus and the train everywhere. Why? Because I had learned that in London. You know, I had learned how to deal with a city in that way. Um, but I also liked walking, which again, you know, all three of those activities open a very, very different Los Angeles to you than the open top car. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, it, it's, you're absolutely right. Both of you guys, like you, you know, I can drive 10 minutes away from, from so-called difficult or dangerous areas in LA and run smack into million dollar property. That's, that's just the strangeness of Los Angeles. There's two things I want to pick up on. Um, one is, uh, the, the, something Gabriel might have, uh, an opinion on. And that is that I think for a while there wasn't a focus, certainly in the media, in literature, even necessarily on the more deprived areas of London or of cities in general, but specifically about how wealth can live next, literally next door to poverty. And I think Grenfell shone a massive light on that for London. And I think since then, you know, I think personally, there's, it's almost like the authorities, but also just people, people like me, privileged people, have had to had to think about it. We've be, we've been made to face it because of you know how big a story that was. Would you would you agree with that to some degree? Like one hundred percent. You know what? I wanted to add something to that as well because it's something that's really interesting that happened with a shift in the media. So when I was in the noughties, when when I was coming up and I was still involved in the streets and gang culture and everything, <clears throat> like there was no. News, mainstream newspapers did not report about gang culture really and gang crime not really unless unless someone got killed in like oxford street like you know in the shopping in in one of the main sense bits of central london where everybody was shopping in broad daylight in front of everyone then yeah that would make the news but the amount of shootings that happened in south kilburn and people getting shot and stuff that never and in northwest london that never i mean never made the news apart from maybe a local paper and you still wonder about that and think like like what's this about and funnily enough when i when i wrote my book 
there was this moment when I wrote a line somewhere where I was like, and how the media doesn't pay any attention to it and everything. And then I actually cut it out because now it's like proper, as the French would say, a la mode, isn't it? It's like fashionable, isn't it? Yeah, for, for the media to write about gang crime and gang culture and stabbings. And, and I'll tell you something for real. It's not to negate like how serious the situation is for young people now. But in the noughties, the murder rate was much higher. The gun crime rate was much, much higher. It's just the papers didn't pay attention to it then. Like now the statistics for London, actually, if you compare it to cities like LA, New York, Chicago, for example, it's nothing. It's not to say though that the loss of young, you know, young lives involved in gang, gang crime is negligible. That's not what I'm saying. But in terms of putting it into perspective, it's like it is actually like much much better than it ever was it's just we see it more because it's represented in the newspaper more and people get this impression oh it's getting worse and worse it's not if you look at the statistics 10 years ago 15 years ago it was much much worse but with that what happened with the media paying attention to gang crime and gang culture suddenly there was this focus on the massive social inequality within the city because I think it's a it's an affliction that that happens particularly in very wealthy cities. The wealthiest the city, the 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 much bigger the schism is between rich and poor and the sense of disadvantage and advantage that comes with that. And I think yeah, and I think with Grenfell it's like it definitely exposed one of the things that it exposed which I think was particularly fascinating it wasn't just about housing and the conditions in which people lived it was to do with the attitudes. It was to do with the forgetfulness of people that if, you know, if certain people don't stray into certain areas, they forget that there is this level of problem. And it's also a bit like how when people talk about, in at least in the English media, I don't know if people talk like that about um, America and LA, because I think, I think people know that the LA prison system is like really hardcore. Um, but here in the UK, a lot of the times, like people talk about guys going to prison and they're like, oh, you know, they get a TV in their cell and like, you know, they, they get free meals a day and everything. And some of them can have PlayStations and everything. And no one knows about how many people are getting their faces cut for like minor things like getting stabbed and slashed in the showers and madness like that, like people coming out with life changing injuries. No one, they're just like, oh, you know, they go into prison, they have PlayStations, they watch TV, everything's fine and everything. And and in the same way, there's, there's that thing of like, people don't realize like the way in which other people live and the difficulties that those people face. And, and for myself, just to add, sorry, cause I don't want to, I don't want to ramble on, but for myself, one of the things that, that I noticed with certain criticisms of myself, I mean, this isn't, it's, it's not a major issue or anything, but some people, specifically English people who are obsessed with classism, pointed out that, you know, I had a good education and my twin brother plays the violin and everything. And in, in British culture, that's associated with with privilege and therefore with a certain degree of financial stability but I came from a fi family with no financial stability that I had a lot of financial disadvantages but I also came from an eastern European background that valued culture and education and there was a pressure on me to live up to those expectations so I was confronted with these two worlds of like the the expectations of my parents to just immerse myself in studies and you know to create a, a a better future for myself than they could necessarily for themselves but in London in this incredibly wealthy city which they ultimately didn't come from and didn't grow up in 
I'm constantly assaulted by these pressures of materialism and how materialism gives people status and how the people who have certain materialistic signs of wealth or, or, or have the wealth that gives them a certain social maneuverability have a huge advantage over others who, who don't have those materialistic things. And then some people like myself basically decide to turn to crime um, to, to find a way out or to elevate themselves. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just so great hearing you both talk and, and we, could, we could talk and talk about these books and about both L.A., London and, and you know, and I, I would like to do that at some, some other point. Um, before, we, uh, before we move on to, to find out a little bit about what you've been reading, I just wanted to ask you, Ryan, one, one final thing um, relating to the system, and that is that the, the book is set almost well almost 30 years ago give or take um but i just felt like it was so relevant to now and i i guess i i just want to get your thoughts on that and if you think it's in a better or worse place than it was then oh wow uh (laughs) you ask a huge (laughs) question joe uh right at the end man um I could write 12 fair, essays Sorry. on this. No, no, it's good. I'm really glad you did. I, I would say in, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, things haven't changed because the overall decision-making structure uh, on punishment has not changed. Uh, what's more, and granted, this was not something that I could tackle in the book because it's primarily a thriller I, you know, I think there are still some pretty sizable and really difficult issues connected to mental health that the criminal justice system in the United States, and in particular, California, really isn't suited to handle well. Uh, I, and, and, and I will say this, like, I, I think it's unfair, you know, to ask, you know, law enforcement and including, you know, guards uh, within custody facilities to have to deal with some of these things when they're not trained to do so. It's unfair to them, and it's certainly unfair to the folks who may be dealing with some of those issues that are only exacerbated, you know, when uh, separated from society, separated from family, separated from loved ones. Uh, so I think there's a shift is needed, uh, and and maybe, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm not I'm not going to go too down the road of trying to solve it. Uh, sure. But sure. I will say this: I think you know most. Most amazingly, uh, there was a new uh, district attorney uh, voted in just a few months ago, uh, George Gascon, uh, and he came in mainly looking to reform, which I can tell you has never really happened in L.A. before. Uh, it's, that's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And, you know, James Queeley is, is a great local crime writer for the L.A. Times. He's been documenting how law enforcement, as well as judges, as well as lawyers have been reacting to you know, um, Gascon looking to, you know, reduce mandatory minimums, reduce uh, weapons enhancements, all kinds of things. It's not going incredibly well, uh, as as you might imagine. But I will say this, that is a significant cultural shift from the 90s. You know, we're, you know, if, if we're talking about the 90s, you know, I know Gabriel was talking about the noughties. I know, I know th- things were relatively bad in and around the area where where i was but then again i wasn't getting media coverage on things i was mainly hearing things through word of mouth you know from folks 
Uh, but here in LA in the nineties, I mean, it was, it was extraordinarily brutal, uh, with, with the, uh, gang activity. Um, at one point, I believe LA County's numbers, and this might've been either late 91 or early 92, uh, folks were dying at the rate of almost 10 a day. It was extraordinarily bad. Was that Bloods and Crips? The the arrow of the bloods and crypts. Yeah, yes, but uh, you know, the, the, it's really easy because of you know media and in particular Hollywood's influence to say, oh, it's primarily this. You know, it was primarily. Oh yeah, no, of course. You know, African American gangs, but it but it was so much larger than that. Of and course. in many ways, yeah. Sorry to to, <laughs> to jump on that, but in in many ways, um, the elements like the the larger prison gang element that I kind of tackle in in the system is ultimately what brought a number of these street gangs and indeed some of these these um, drive-by shootings and other things, they, they brought it to heel. You know, they basically made it very obvious, like this is not something that we're willing to do anymore. Not because it was the right thing per se, but because it messed with business. Because it made, you know, taking care of certain things and making money in certain ways far more difficult. If, if law enforcement and, and, and others were extremely interested in certain areas, houses, neighborhoods. So I, in some ways it's better and in, in some ways it's worse, but I will say this, I definitely have hope we're going in the right direction, uh, mainly because of this last summer. You know, I think we're talking about social and cultural issues uh, in a much more elevated way, you know, that, than we had been before. And I th I'd like to think that's only positive, but, but to be honest with you, I don't know, you know, I don't know how people have been reacting to the truth. I know, I know some people who just turn away, who don't want to hear it, who don't, you know, who, exactly along the lines of what Gabriel was saying, you know, oh yeah, people in there, they have TVs and PlayStations. They're fine. Um, it's, it's not like that. Uh, and there are, there are definitely two criminal justice systems in America. Um, Race, unfortunately, plays a huge part of that. But I would say that the class element in America is monstrous as well. Like if you can afford a good defense lawyer, you're going to get an infinitely better shot uh, at, at getting out of uh, charges than, than someone who's, who's given uh, potentially an overworked public defender. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I, that was a pretty big question to ask you. I, think you've <laughs> I did my best. I, re I was even watching the time, Joe. I was watching the time. I'm like, okay, I got to shut up. <laughs> no, I think that was a great, that was a great answer. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It really was. <laughs> Well, look, I mean, as I say, we could we could continue this conversation and, and I want to at some point and maybe when we're allowed out and, and Ryan, when you're allowed to come over here or or maybe me and Gabriel will come over there. That's a better one. We'll do it in person and we'll do it in front of an audience. But for now, um, before we do the book off, I want to just get a sense of what you've been reading recently. Perhaps you could both give us a, just a, a quick recommendation or two of something that you've read and enjoyed recently. Is there something, Gabriel, that you've you've read that you want to tell us about very briefly? Yeah, I read this amazing novel called The Sailor Who Fell From Grace With The Sea by a Japanese writer called Yukio Mishima. Um, it's an amazing, quite sinister novel. Um, it's a very clever novel about basically these, this young boy who's kind of coming to terms with his mother um, having an affair or falling in love with this young sailor who he idolizes 
and then when he kind of realizes that his his vision of this sailor is is not what he thought it was um his idolization turns to kind of resentment and hatred it's also a very very clever metaphor for the modernization of japan and and a certain loss of traditional japanese culture after the american occupation uh, just after the second world war wow and who's that by again did you say mishima uh, yuki or mishima mm. you've mishima. read it have you ryan yeah. yeah i read it about 20 years ago it's incredible oh wow okay. yes yeah, amazing isn't it? yeah yeah i um i quite recently read well last year um a book called the memory police which is by yoko agawa um which was shortlisted longlisted or shortlisted for the booker international prize um and just just hearing you talk about that book gabriel made me think of that and i would really recommend it uh called the memory police it's it's a strange wonderful book and i don't want to tell you much about it i just want you to read it so that's that's a recommendation yeah. from me I'll, I'll definitely check it out. i think i think like there's a lot of amazing literature out there in translation um that kind of isn't discussed enough over here at least in the english speaking world um that people should kind of explore more basically i read a lot in in of literature and translation myself um fantastic yeah. and what about you ryan what have you read recently okay i'm gonna be as as quick as possible <laughs> uh <laughs> i'm currently i'm currently reading escapes by daniel tunnard which believe it or not is is i i don't even know how to completely explain it it's a bit of a mystery but based on a fictional scrabble mafia it's um it's really quite good like it's one of those books i thought man i'm never going to get into this but you know i mean honestly tunnard can write a heck of a sentence and and he's he's just so interesting in talking about argentina and and uh, some of these other areas in in the world uh i just finished line of sight uh which is actually the debut uh novel by james queely who's the crime reporter here in la that i was just mentioning earlier uh, it's really, really good and interesting, and it follows uh, a young reporter in New Jersey, uh, and and it it actually feels extremely topical because it deals with, um, you know, some of the the recent issues of unrest and and criminal justice uh, questions. And in my to be read pile, I have uh, Walter Mosley, A Red Death, which was very highly, highly recommended to me. I love Walter Mosley. I mean, just an iconic, incredible, important LA writer and will be forever. Uh, and I also have some nonfiction here, The Compton Cowboys uh, by Walter Thompson Hernandez, uh, which is about cowboy culture right here in uh, South Central Los Angeles. I saw an amazing documentary actually about that, The Cowboys of um of south central la and i think some of them featured in like a kendrick lamar video if i'm not mistaken that is quite amazing yeah 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 all right on yeah no it's quite amazing i wouldn't it's be surprised amazing. yeah i love that kind of mix of surrealism and actually the reality of how people have you know such a varied range of interests no matter what place in the world you're in like it's so important to be reminded yeah. of that but also it has history it's just not what people would would necessarily associate with with that area but they need to they need to learn about it such a, a wonderful list of books there just from what you've been reading recently so thank you for those and now we turn to the book <laughs> off <laughs> a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is where each of you gets three minutes on the clock and you are uninterrupted to tell us about a book that you love and why you think we should all read it. You don't have to use those three minutes, but as you reach the three minute mark, I will either be ringing you out or honking you out. <laughs> <Wow>. Yeah. That <laughs> was loud. In it. Oh, savage. Before, oh, sorry about that. <laughs> I, do you know what I was? I was really conscious of holding that away from the microphone as well, but maybe I didn't do it quite quite enough. Fail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, before we, um, uh, we before we find out even the books that you're putting forward, we need to decide who goes first and who goes second. So, Gabriel, what 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 are you feeling? You're feeling you want to go first, or do you want to see? I don't, what I don't mind. Got? I don't mind. I don't mind. I don't mind. I'm up for it. I can go first. It's fine. Step up to the plate. All right. I feel exactly the same way, Joe. Flip a coin. Well, I tell you what, I haven't got. Yeah. I haven't got a coin because um, cash is uh, cash is sort of you know uh, irrelevant at the moment. But um, I tell you what, I'll do. I'll flip. I'm going to flip something over here. Hold on. Uh, I'm going to flip a USB. So Ryan, do you want sc- oh scan disc or do you want cruiser blade? The second one. Here we, here we go. <laughs> oh, it's scan disc. Okay. Uh, that means Gabriel, you get cool. to choose first or second. I'll go first. I'll go first. And Ryan, would you like to be rung out by the bell, or do you want to be honked out by the horn? You know, it, it surprised me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna. Okay, <laughs> I, I have that feeling. Three minutes are going on the clock for you, Gabriel. Just tell us quickly before we start what book you're putting forward. So the book is Widow Basquiat by Jennifer Clement. Sounds great. I don't know it, but I'm looking forward to hearing you tell us all about it. So it's over to you. Okay, so this book is basically a story of how an idol dies. um, And it's also the story of self-destructive love. And without, I don't want to reveal too much about what actually happens in the narrative, but the friends of Basquiat who are still alive and the people who knew him say that without question, this is the greatest summation of his life and greatest kind of biographical account of his life and yet it's a work of fiction or technically it's a work of fiction it's this kind of literature that we've been talking about that you know conveys the reality and basically allows the the reader to kind of bridge the the world of 
of that they know and that's familiar to them and kind of enter an, an entirely different reality, an entirely different time and place. And it's basically the story about told from the perspective of Basquiat's great love, uh, whose name was Suzanne Malouk. And she was this girl who came from Canada to New York and she met Basquiat in a bar and fell in love with him and he fell in love with her and she basically embarked on this kind of love affair with him and also bore witness to to his kind of rise through the art world and and the many challenges and difficulties that he faced in that but what's particularly powerful about this book is first of all it's written in a series of incredibly short episodic chapters and those chapters in themselves are like paintings and they reflect the way in which Basquiat himself created these works of art that were incredibly powerful, but you could look at them very briefly and get a lot out of them, or you could stand in front of them for a long time, even after you'd taken in the entire image and feel a lot of things as a result of it and, and think about a lot of things that aren't necessarily right there in front of you. And these chapters kind of behave in that same way where while they're telling the story of Suzanne meeting Basquiat and Basquiat's own kind of struggle through what was a very exclusive, very white, very elitist art world. Um, basically how how he kind of went through those struggles and yet these, these episodes tell us more than just that struggle. They also tell the story of his interior life. They tell the story of their love and they ultimately tell the story of the kind of tragic self-destructiveness. And one, one of the reasons why I think this is incredibly powerful is because we all, I think all of us have an idol who died too young or who died tragically or who died in circumstances that left a hole in our hearts and in other people's hearts, whether that's a singer, a rapper, a musician, a writer, a sculptor, an artist, whatever. There's there's somebody like that who we've idolized who's died in that way. And often all we have is the kind of mythologized immortalization of these people where we see them as these icons, but we don't really know all the kind of backstory and, and all the complexity behind them. What this book does is it reveals the flawed reality and sometimes ugly nature of, of the reality of Basquiat's life because he struggled with heroin addiction. So I, I just want to basically finish by saying that while it reveals all, all of that, it actually, in revealing that flawed reality, makes him even greater and lives leaves behind a a, a very powerful memory um, and memorialization of his life. And I think everybody should read it. Fantastic. That's over three minutes. That's over three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ryan, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you an extra 11 seconds because Gabriel I don't need it. I don't need it, Joe. <laughs> oh, jeez, Smack talk. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, I, I, Joe, I love you. I, I love this pod. <laughs> I'm familiar how it goes down. Don't worry. I'm here. <laughs> So uh, take a breather, Gabriel. We'll come back and talk about that book in just a moment. I've got lots of questions. But it's over to you now, Ryan. Three minutes going on the clock. What are you putting forward? Don't start the time till I tell you the title. Okay. Signs Preceding the End of the World by Yuri Herrera. Fantastic. Three minutes starts now. It's short and sharp, like a good paring knife. And nine chapters, 96 pages, it opens up the USA and Mexico both, and the border created by our pressed shoulders. And I think it's impossible to fully understand the United States without knowing Mexico. One can't truly know where the USA came from or what it is without our neighbor, but it's deeper than that. 
were powered by Mexico, by its people, by migrations, by lineages, and Signs Preceding the End of the World utilizes migration as an epic journey, and it casts the United States as the underworld. The book's crime elements are jagged, riddled with human knowingness, especially about bad men. To quote, Mr. Q never resorted to violence. At least, there was nobody who'd say he did. And to quote again, he didn't brush against her, but he felt her up with his breath, the son of a bitch. Now the her here is Makina, a protagonist who navigates these pillars of the community. She has her rules for surviving, and I'm quoting again, you don't lift other people's petticoats. You don't stop to wonder about other people's business. You don't decide which messages to deliver and which to let rot. You are the door, not the one who walks through it. And because Makina abides by these, she's respected. She can move across the border with a mission to find her brother and deliver a message, which drives the book forward. What astounds me about Herrera's work is that it feels contemporary and mythic at the same time, which, <laughs> trust me, is nearly impossible to do. Uh, though this is also down to the brilliant translation by Lisa Dillman, whose translators afterward is honestly one of the best process pieces I've read on the subject of word choice. Because ultimately, this is a book that adores words and how they work. There's a moment near the end when a cop orders Makina to write why she thinks, and I'm quoting again, her ass is in the hands of this patriotic officer, end quote, and what she writes with determination disturbs him deeply, but only in the way that truth delivered through art can. It gives us new eyes to see, but only if we're open to it, only if we let ourselves feel it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> uh, just give you one of those for luck. You had fifteen, well, you had sixteen seconds left, but you didn't need them, as you rightly said, and that was smashed it. <laughs> <laughs> that was Thank wonderful. You, sir. Thank you. Sir. Oh God, I mean, I could do another thirty minutes talking about these books now, but we're going to wrap it up. I do want to just come <laughs> back and talk about um, the 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 widow basket Basquiat. I can never say his name properly. Um, I loved, loved, loved your pitch. I don't know this book. I know of Basquiat's art and I am a, a fan to a, to a degree, but your description of those short chapters being like works of art and actually the comparison to his work of how you can look at a painting or read one of these chapters and get something from them quickly and move on, or you can spend a bit of time and get more. I just th thought was wonderful. And it sounds, you know, what, what's great is it, it sort of ties in with what we were talking about of how it's fiction and yet it's I think you said Gabriel you know it's 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 been said to be the greatest summation of his life even though it's fiction most definitely yeah like all the people all the people who are really close to him have said that this is like the best books that that's ever been written about him and and a lot of them have also complained about how exploitative uh certain other people who've written kind of biographies not not necessarily you know art historians but certain people who after his death wanted to kind of capitalize on it and you know tell their story of how they knew Basquiat and everyone says that this book is incredibly sensitive to him and, and incredibly truthful as well because you know it's, it's, it doesn't just tell the glory of a great artist it also kind of goes into the sordid details of a an artist who ultimately you know self ended up in a in a state of self-destruction yeah 
do you have a, a an idol who died too young, Gabriel? Most recently, Nipsey Hussle, the the legendary um, LA rapper. Mm. Yeah, I have many, <laughs> unfortunately. There are. Yeah. That's the thing. There are many. Yeah, mm. you're right. But you you were right in saying it. We all we all have at least one. I think. Yeah. Um, and then, Ryan, to you to your poetic pitch. Um, it's it's funny that we just referenced. In fact, Gabriel talked about it, the importance of translated fiction, and here you are telling us about a book in translation. And it's so important, so important to recognise yeah. the translator as much as the author because their work is, you know, they make the book for the reader in whichever language it is they're translating. Um, this sort of, <laughs> I don't know, there's so much to go out with this book. Um, you can't know the US until you know its neighbour. And I think that's so important. The dra- jagged crime elements really drew me in. You know, I, I I love a book that adores words and how they work. And I love that phrase that you use. I love the mythical idea of it. Um, oh, it, just, it just sounds brilliant. I mean, they both do. They both sound wonderful. And I have written both of them down on this ever-growing list <laughs> and I'll be going to uh, Good. my local Good. independent bookstore website and ordering them for delivery. But I've got to pick one to take home because that's the game and I've got to base it on I got to base it on the pitch because I think both books are e- sound equally brilliant al- although very different. Um but I'm do you know what? I'm going to take home <laughs> Widow Basquiat. <laughs> well, Gabriel. Thank you. <laughs> you just, you just nipped it, I think, uh, but, but possibly because I'm feeling in a sort of arty mood. That's possibly the first time I've won anything apart from a scratch card. Still, <laughs> <laughs> I guess this means I was shortlisted for the book off. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. I see what you did there. <laughs> that's very good. And sadly, even though you've won, Gabriel, um, I've got nothing to give you but, oh, but pride. Fine. So that's, you know, <laughs> there's, no, there's nothing better than that. <laughs> uh, the system by Ryan Gattis is out now. It's published by Picador and Who They Was by Gabriel Krauser, also out now, published by Fourth Estate. I cannot tell you how much I loved these books. And if you're listening and you don't know these writers and these stories, I urge you to order them now and read them and enjoy it. They're important and they are a brilliant, brilliant voices. Ryan, Gabriel, what an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm so glad we could do this and I hope um, that we can meet in person in the future. Likewise. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Gabriel. No, thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Joel. Take care, guys. You too. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, fresh. 